You are tuned to Hawaii Public Radio. This is The Conversation, and I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we pause to consider where we stand as we try to recover from the pandemic. For almost a year and a half, this health and economic crisis has tested our systems and our psyche. We turn to University of Hawaii Urban and Regional Planning Professor Carl Kim, who also happens to be Executive Director of the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, to talk about managing risk and uncertainty. What are some of the lessons learned from our response to COVID-19 so we can be better prepared for the next pandemic? You know, I I study disasters. I mean, I study not just what happens in terms of the damages and the impacts, but how we respond uh, and recover from disasters. And we use this information to develop training and educational programs for emergency managers, first responders, urban planners, and, and members of the community. And I have to start by saying the pandemic is really different from other disasters. It's really different from a volcano, earthquake, tsunami, hurricane, or flooding or um, I mean because it's global and it's affecting all communities throughout the world all countries every every place it's also really different because of how long it has lasted you know other disaster events they end more quickly it's been about 16 months since we've had to deal with this um, COVID-19 pandemic uh, in Hawaii and around the world. Uh, And what what is also quite different is that over the 16 months, a lot has changed. I mean, on the good side, we know a lot more about the disease and how to control it, Um, but the disease itself has changed. Um, you know, the virus has mutated. There are, you know, really different strains. You know, the the Delta variant, um, the Delta Plus, uh, Gamma, Lambda. Every every time you turn around, there there are changes uh, to the to the disease. It's it's mutating, and um, and that creates real challenges. But we do know certain things. Um, I mean, the Delta variant is highly contagious. Uh, and those with health conditions, uh, with existing or chronic medical conditions, with weakened immune systems, really need to take extra precautions. Even those who've been vaccinated uh, can catch the disease and spread it. You know, the vaccinated ones uh, who catch the disease are called the breakthrough cases. And every day we're learning about more and more of these breakthrough cases. And and while the symptoms and uh, conditions, uh, if you've been vaccinated, uh, may be much less than uh, if you haven't been vaccinated, unvaccinated people are really at the highest risk of not just catching the disease and spreading it, but really the adverse uh, effects of the disease. And so so there, there's some things that have changed, you know, that we have, you know, uh, more information. But I think what we need is, uh, is really a multi-layered approach um, that involves doing the same thing, but also doing some things differently. I mean, I think we need more testing. We need more and better contact tracing. Obviously, we need to increase the number of people who are vaccinated. We need to develop, you know, more treatments. Um, but I think there's a lot of things that everyone in the community needs to do uh, to fight this, uh, fight the spread of this disease. And I think that includes uh, wearing masks. It includes wearing shields. It includes uh, all the things that we learned about doing to not. Uh, spread the disease because this disease will continue to mutate and change, and we are going to have it's going to be with us for uh, for for some time. Um, and we may not get you know the new vaccines or the new boosters or the new treatments in time. So all the other things that we've learned about how to uh, contain this disease, we we have to 
we could bring them back and, and, and use them. Transportation planning is one of your fortes. I mean, how are you looking at that with the filter on COVID-19? Yeah, we know that that's, that's critical. That's the way the, the disease is spread. I mean, it was brought into Hawaii and other places uh, by travel. It spreads locally by travel, by local travel, by uh, the movements of infected people. And so we really need to pay attention to uh, the movements of people, uh, people that have potentially been exposed to uh, the virus, uh, who are carrying the virus. And, and what's so difficult about this is why we need masks and hygiene is that many of these people don't have symptoms um, or their symptoms are mild. And yet they're very contagious and they could spread it to someone else who could have really adverse consequences if they, if they get sick. Uh, so I think we need to really understand the underlying travel, travel behaviors. Uh, and that's what we study. Uh, we study how people travel, what modes they travel by, when they travel, where, where is there the greatest congestion, where is the... Uh, the greatest number of people. Where are the contacts? Where the the, the mode changes or the switches uh, occur when you're going from one travel mode to another? And so that's why it's been a very very busy time for our research team at the University of Hawaii, studying both international domestic travel, the hotspot locations, nationally, internationally, and and then locally as well too. So what's your comfort level? Are you <laughs> ready to travel or not? You know, I think a month ago I was feeling pretty comfortable, but, you know, the recent surge in cases, the wall that we seem to have hit in terms of vaccinations, and then the kind of rollback of, you know, protective actions and behaviors like wearing masks, and keeping our guard up and you know there are too many people that said oh it's over with we can just you know forget about it and i think that's the wrong the wrong attitude it is hard because different countries have different restrictions in some places the borders have not opened yet you know they're just hunkering down so that that's kind of hard to navigate too to keep track of yeah and so that's the really interesting thing about disasters there's a certain amount of science. There's a certain amount of medicine. There's an awful lot of social science that we're looking at. Um, you know, how people behave, how do they respond to orders or recommendations or kind of prudent behavior. I mean, something as simple as a mask, I mean, it's just kind of common sense. And yet um, we see a lot of behavior that indicates that you know, there are these there are these other forces that are that are going on. So part of it is, you know, really understanding the way people respond and handle uh, risks and hazards. And, and we need good information. We need credible information. And, and and we need to also recognize that, you know, under this situation, we we've got to protect the vulnerable uh, populations. There's still lots of people who haven't been vaccinated, and there are people that if they get the disease, you know, they could have really serious uh, complications. We're watching everybody prepare to return to in-person learning for, you know, the campuses that have not yet done that to the fullest extent. And, you know, there is a bit of, you know, hand-wringing because of the different guidance that's come out, right? The latest one, CDC, we had the Department of Health, Department of Education uh, guidance as well. You know, even for something as simple as getting your kid on the city bus to go to school. Yeah, this is challenging because people want to go back to, you know, businesses as it was before. And we know that uh, these stay-at-home orders and social distancing and remote learning has not been good for, for our children and for learning and for uh, interaction. So we understand why, you know, people want to do this. But I think it's also necessary to take the precautions uh, that, are, that I think we know about. And, and that is you know, wear a mask, 
If you're feeling sick or have any symptoms, stay at home. If you, we should really increase the amount of testing. We have increased testing capabilities. And without really knowing uh, how the disease is spreading, whether asymptomatic people, you know, have the disease, asymptomatic children have the disease, we really can't contain this. And so we have the systems in place for testing, for contact tracing, for identifying the hot spots, the locations, and, and, and managing this. And, uh, and, and we need to um, not just completely let down our guard, but actually um, adopt those systems so that, so, so that we can continue to get back to business as usual. On the planning part, I know the state had you know, made every effort to make sure we didn't fall short on getting test kits and then come to find out, you know, those test kits, there was something else, something better came along, and then they were struck with millions of dollars worth of test kits then it, that then expired back in March. I think they're still back and forth about can we use those still or not. We just were talking to a private school, you know, this past week, and they were saying, oh, we have like, yeah, like 10,000 of these antigen tests. Uh, they're going to keep testing their student body, you know, because everybody's back in the going to be back in the classroom. But it's just really interesting to see you know, how do you plan for that? You know, you're buying too much. You don't buy enough. Well, yeah, and, and that's that's part of the challenge of, uh, of uh, managing this, that uh, the conditions change, but um, we still know a lot of what needs to be done, and I think it's not just testing, but it's also wearing a mask, wearing face shields, wearing gloves, doing all that we can to prevent the spread of, uh, of an infectious disease. And so rather than say it's just one thing, it's really a combination uh, of strategies that, that need to be implemented by individuals, by households, by businesses, by schools and institutions. And, and, and we have to really work together to share information and you know, I, I hear other things, too, like, oh, this is just like the common cold. You know, for some people, it may be. I mean, the symptoms are, are minor. But for many others, for uh, they're really long haulers, the people that have, you know, had uh, major complications from this disease, it is not like the common cold. It is, it is a much more serious, uh, dangerous um, illness. And I guess, too, you know, you mentioned we've been dealing with this for 16 months, and I guess we just have to resign ourselves that, look, this is going to be around for a long time. We don't know when it's going to be over. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I agree with that. And that's part of the, the challenge that, uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we have to have uh, endurance and we have to have leaders and others that are thinking about the long term not just you know this week or next week, um, and I think that's a that that's a challenge because we're we're so used to kind of easy, quick fixes, easy answers, uh, and unfortunately, this is this is not something that is that simple or that that easy. And it kind of reminds us that there are these other complex global challenges we've had with climate change, with the sea level rise, with extreme weather events, other, other types of hazards and threats, building our capability to understand them and manage them, is all, it, it's all related. That was UH Manoa Urban Planning Professor Carl Kim, who also heads the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center. Kim says this pandemic is unlike any other disaster and suggests that we cut each other some slack as we try to move through this transition phase. We have, after all, been dealing with this for almost a year and a half. The rental car shortage has spurred some to turn to renting out their personal cars for quick cash. Following complaints from a Wailai Kahala neighborhood about a resident renting out a fleet of more than 15 cars, 
State tax investigators responded, and so did the city. HPR has learned that the Department of Planning and Permitting uh, issued three violation notices this summer after neighbors complained about an onslaught of tourists coming in uh, onto their streets looking for vehicles they rented off Turo, a peer-to-peer car rental app. We talked to Dean Uchida, the director of the Department of Planning and Permitting, about the violations and asked what should residents do if they see a problem in their neighborhood. Call our department. I'll give you a number even. Okay. <laughs> Call our number. File a complaint. It's 768 8259. And just give us the location, address, and what they were observing. <clears throat> the biggest problem we have with them is they, they park on the street, and if they got a lot of cars, it takes up a lot of the street parking. And you did cite uh, someone in the Wailakahala area for having, like, I don't know, 17 vehicles. Uh, we had, um, let's see, we have six open complaints right now. Three of them we issued notice of violations for. One in Kahala, one in Aea, and one in Foster Village. And the Foster Village one was a recurring offense, so they're going to get increase in fines for that. When you say reoccurring, so basically you get uh, additional complaints and you go back and you investigate? Either, either additional complaints or our investigator goes back and see that they haven't um, changed their operation. Okay. Well, what can you share with us? I mean, I don't know how so, uh, how long ago... How long ago did these complaints start coming in? Um, most of them were in the last couple of months. The auto notice of violations went out um, in June and July. Um, so just a couple of weeks ago, the two two went out, and one went out in actually end of June. But that was a and uh, that was a second. That was a recurring one. The first violation went out in March. March of this year, okay, yeah. and and so you know, I guess the neighbors are just starting to, I guess, push back when they see this activity uh, happening on the roadways in front of their homes. Yeah, that's that's what they should do. You're not allowed to conduct that kind of operation in a residential neighborhood. What are what do the rules say? I mean, what are you allowed to do or not allowed to do? I mean, I guess break that down for us. I think as a as a home business, you can have a, a rental. A car rental business, but all your cars have to be parked on your property, and I, can, I think you max out at two. And so, if they're parked on the street, right, or you have more than two, that's when you get the notice of violation for. And what is the fine? I think it's like two fifty for the initial, and on a recurring one, it goes up to five hundred, and then there's a daily fine of I think fifty dollars on the five hundred one. I looked up a couple of these, and I think in one instance there was someone renting a Jeep for like $330 a day. Yeah. You know, so if you've got a, a dozen of these cars, I mean, you know, they're raking in some serious money. Yes, and um, that's part of what we're doing right now. We're kind of overhauling all our, our violations and fines because they seem to be all over a map. You know, like in this case, it's 250 but you got an illegal short-term vacation rental, and it's $10,000, so... There's been no ability internally to kind of, you know, get all our fines in line. So we, we're in the process of doing that right now. Well, talk about that because, you know, you just took over that department. You know, what's your vision, you know, for going forward? Well, we want to, you know, we want to treat everybody fairly. But if you violate the law, there's going to be consequences. And we want to be consistent. That's why we're trying to bring all our fines into some kind of consistent format. So the fine... Basically, it's not like a cost of doing business for some people, um, and it really is punitive, you know, because we're trying to stop it, correct it, and make sure that they don't do it again. Um, and we're not in a, I think the prior administrations and even several administrations, um, the whole intent was to try and get compliance with um, violators. But I think in this administration, you know, if you do the crime, you got to pay the money. So we're going to go after people who um, violate the law and use that as a deterrent to, to discourage other people from violating the law. You know, there was a time when, uh, you know, obviously your department was uh, organized a different way, but, you know, under John Whalen, I believe, you know, if there were building height violations, and I recall the case of the Palolo Temple where he had them, you know, take down their roof line because it was, they built it too high and, you know, stood his ground. <laughs> so this administration is going to be looking at, at something more strict. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, every case is different, but I think our bottom line is, you know, um, we want to make sure that everybody plays by the same set of rules, right? And if you violate it, then you're going to have to pay the fine. The vacation rental issue, 
the neighbors started to push back when they started to get tourists coming in on their streets outside of the resort districts. Mm-hmm. And those those were unpermitted, and you know, they weren't paying, probably weren't paying taxes. Correct. We're about to uh, do some major reno- uh, revisions to the short-term vacation rental ordinance, so just stay tuned. It should be coming out in a few weeks. Okay. So the public will be able to provide input on those? Correct. We have to go amend the ordinance this way. They were supposed to roll that out earlier, and it's been delayed. Yeah, well, it was passed under the prior administration, I think, last year or a couple years ago. And we came in, and and in light of what COVID has done, we kind of took a fresh look at the short-term vacation rental ordinance, listening to the public, listening to what everybody was saying. So we went in and made some uh, major renovations or um, amendments to the ordinance. Okay, so we should expect that out sometime next month, maybe? Yeah, if not sooner. We're trying to work on a finalized version right now this way. And so what else can you share with us just about, you know, going forward, whether it's regulating businesses like the car rental, Turo peer-to-peer, you know, operations or or vacation rentals? Traditionally, it's been complaint-driven. I mean, will we continue to see that going forward? Yeah, you know why? Because most of our, our, our violations are all civil kind of violations. We cannot go out and arrest people, right? So... Yeah, usually we cover the whole island, and actually this department, I think there's like 42 different ordinances in this entire city, and I think we're involved in more than half of them. So our violation responsibility kind of spans the gamut, you know, from building code violation to land use violations to everything under the sun, um, building code and everything. So, you know, we're trying to, like, draw a line and be, you know, really enforce the law, but there's so many things that we have to enforce. Um, we cannot be real proactive in a lot of it. You know, a lot of it is just reacting. So we try and prevent things from happening, like through building permit review and things. But, you know, generally we don't have enough people in the field that can pick up on all these things. So a lot of our, a lot of our investigations are complaint-driven. Are we working on something that would allow our inspectors to have the flexibility to work on weekends, maybe when some of these enforcements or some of these infractions happen? Yeah, I think, we, you know, we're open to a lot of things. Um, you know, we, we presently, I think the biggest challenge we have is, uh, you know, the vacancies. We're, our department as a whole is about 23%, 24% vacancy rate right now. Wow. You know, if you talk to a private business, they would go belly up if there was half the, I mean, one quarter of the employees went around, right? So COVID has kind of put a damper on our ability to hire. We just got the hiring freeze lifted, so we're trying to fill a lot of our priority positions, including some of the inspectors. But... And it's an uphill battle with government. We, we cannot pay what the private sector does. Um, but everybody expects us to be every place at the same time. So one of the challenges we have is getting our vacancies filled. How many vacancies do you have, do you know, roughly? I think about 80. You're kidding. Yeah. 80 slots open, 80 inspectors? No, 80 across the whole department. Oh, I see. Just different yeah. different jobs. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Some places... Uh, um, like a permit intake branch, I think the vacancy is about 50% right now with the vacancies as well as people on different kind of leaves. So, so what kind struggling. of backlog do you have? Yeah, that's why we got a backlog because of the intake branch. We don't have enough people down there. Do you know how, lo- how long the backlog is? Just the intake itself, I think, was about two months. But, yeah, over the last weekend, we tried to pay overtime, and we got a lot of the payment process through. We're going to try to do that again and probably get some more people trained and bring them in on the weekends to cut on the backlog. Okay, so if anyone's out there looking for jobs, you've got openings. <laughs> yeah, we got openings. Anything else just about how you either hope to restructure your department? I mean, you know, we, we've seen the the indictments, you know, come down on mm-hmm. some of the inspectors. You know, that's still working its way through the system. Yeah, there's still some outstanding you know, federal investigation going on. But, you know, what we're trying to do is use technology and modernize the whole permit process. So we're in the process of um, looking at different kind of modules that fit on our platform that we have uh, that have been developed since, you know, the early or the early 2000s. And this company that we're dealing with actually provides services to other municipalities and cities around the country. Um, so we're trying to look at which modules like uh, e-plans, inspection, land use permit, and which ones fits our needs, and then we're going to pr- probably adapt them here. Um, and maybe change the way we work so that we can just use the the most powerful part of the software that's available. 
That was Dean Uchida, the new director of the Department of Planning and Permitting. He was talking about the complaints that the city's been getting about businesses operating in our neighborhoods. The Honolulu Police Department says it has also begun fielding calls here on Oahu. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Revolusun, working to energize Hawaii homes and businesses since 2009 with solar systems and battery solutions featuring sun power photovoltaic panels. Revolusun.com. Hallways were long and dark. The dorms, it was cold, really cold. John Jones was just seven years old when he was forced to attend the Alberni Residential School in Canada. The physical abuse was every day. It got to the point where I was numb in the pain of. Stories from survivors of Canada's residential schools. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. did a Hawaii concert promoter get more COVID aid than Carnegie Hall? Well, that's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. Almost afternoon, Catherine. Yes, Good almost to be on. afternoon. <laughs> well, this is a head-scratcher. Uh, this is a story by uh, uh, your reporter, uh, Nick Ruby. Right, from D.C., and I'm filling in for him because he's uh, catching a plane back to see us for a couple of weeks. So Nick has been, along with Stuart Yurton, who covers business and other issues, have been looking at, you know, where's the money going, the the federal COVID relief funds, and and we're talking a whole lot of money. And in this particular case, it, it involves money that was set aside by Congress, $16 billion total, to help with folks in the culture and arts business, um, music venues, uh, theaters, museums, even zoos and aquariums that, of course, lost business uh, and more because of COVID. Well, in this particular case, Nick dug up the fact that a, a local concert promoter by the name of Johnny Mack, uh, he runs a company called Dream Weekend, managed to qualify for the maximum from the Small Business uh, Administration of $10 million. Uh, as a matter of fact, he has two other companies that also got some money. All told, uh, Johnny Mack has got $11.3 million from the federal government, a grant to help his businesses survive. And you, you mentioned Carnegie Hall. Yeah, that puts him in the big leagues, not only with the bailout from Carnegie Hall. I think uh, the Hamilton Mega hit on Broadway as well, a field museum of natural history in Chicago. So that's pretty remarkable for a local business to to be in that rank so high. Yeah. So some folks are are kind of scratching their heads. They're like, "Who? <laughs> for what?" <laughs> <laughs> and and by the way, it wasn't just a Dream Weekend, which, as I understand it, even though I don't, I'm too old to follow these people, but uh, I think they had a concert at Aloha Stadium a couple of years back with. Uh, Usher and with Ice Cube and, and Marshmallow, so a pretty popular of, of following. But the only other entity from Hawaii that qualified for that $10 million maxim, maxim, uh, a grant from the federal government was the Polynesian Cultural Center, which, you know, you could see that being a fairly big operation. But you were alluding to the fact that some are kind of scratching their head. Nick did ask Johnny Mac exactly how were you able to do this and you know it has to do with how much money you bring in and, and over what period and uh, Mac declined to talk too much about that instead he was emphasizing that the money will be invested back into his business back into the community and so forth but Nick describes it as a quirk uh, in the application process that allowed him to qualify for this big of big of bailout if you will and Nick's uh, uh, article, uh, online article, talks about, uh, you know, 
how much Hawaii got, you know, compared to everybody else in the country. That's that's another surprise. Uh, and he's got it all listed. There, he's got a, a, t- a couple of tables that are very easy to read, and it lists the names of other companies uh, that got a lot of money. Hawaii uh, received twice the national a- average in terms of this bailout for arts and cultural organizations, uh, and, and 68 organizations total, $102 million. They include groups like uh, Paradise Cove, uh, the Blue Note in Waikiki, uh, Tihati Productions, even the Neil Blaisdell Center. Uh, so Hawaii folks worked the system well in terms of getting support from the federal government. And uh, yeah, I just kind of wonder about the reporting, you know, like where's the money going, Well, that's that's yeah. And and Mac declined to talk much about that. The SBA would not comment on on what it is a warning and to who. But it is public information. And that's how he was able to dig it up uh, through a a project on government oversight. Uh, It is important to understand where that's going. I should also tell you, you know, these folks, many of them really were hurting. And Nick did talk to at least one person involved in the, the arts and cultural industry. Gee, they're worried about the Delta variant. They're worried about the rising case numbers. What is it, triple digits now for the last almost two weeks? Uh, the lag in vaccinations, we seem to have plateaued. The concern is that, yeah, we got a, we got a lot of support from Congress to hang in there. But in, in, th- in case things don't turn around, we're worried about what's going to happen because uh, it doesn't seem like the federal government's going to be inclined to to have such a bailout again. Right now, as you know, they're all focused on infrastructure and the budget. Right. And then, uh, you know, for folks on the neighbor islands, you want to see, uh, you know, what groups got some of that money. You can uh, check out uh, Nick's article there. But uh, uh, thanks so much, Chad. As well to you. Have a good day. And we'll talk to you again soon, Catherine. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Nick Ruby's story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to Hawaii Dermatology and Plastic Surgery Centers. Kilauea Lodge and Spa Hale Kulani. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply. With ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. The Senate Judiciary Committee is considering whether to confirm Daniel Gluck, uh, Governor David Ige's controversial choice, to fill a seat on the Hawaii Intermediate Court of Appeals. Supporters commended uh, Gluck's commitment to social justice, fairness, and his keen legal mind. But critics argue Ige's pick is a result of systemic inequality in the appointment process. HPR's Ku'uve Hirishi joins us to discuss the story. Good morning. Aloha, Catherine. And while you were on air, actually, the committee did vote. Uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted a four to three not to recommend uh, confirmation or consent uh, to the full Senate of, of Daniel Gluck's nomination. So the full Senate uh, will still take it up. Uh, there will be floor debate tomorrow, and they still could uh, advance his, his nomination. But the committee itself, which really uh, struggled over over this decision and heard uh, about four hours of testimony yesterday on the matter, uh, I I think in their in their decision just a few minutes ago, um, you know, uh, 
Senator Chris Lee had said it's this is an important conversation when it comes to the lack of representation, but this isn't the forum, this isn't the time. Uh, Senator Gabbard, you know, we don't want to uh, vote on, uh, we want to vote on Gluck's content of character and not on the color of his skin. So these these conversations uh, were really a reflection of the testimony that was heard yesterday, which was really not so much about uh, every single case or or um, merit that that Gluck had himself. So, uh, you know, former head of the Hawaii State Ethics Commission worked uh, for as a legal director for the ACLU Hawaii. Um, got a lot of strong support from some heavy hitters in the local legal community. Retired Hawaii Supreme Court Associate Justice Stephen Levinson and James Duffy, uh, as well as State Attorney General Claire Connors, who uh, went to school uh, with with Gluck. But a majority of the testimony that we heard yesterday um, was really uh, concerning not so much that work, uh, although there was uh, questions, there were questions about his relative lack of experience compared to the pool of candidates that he was chosen from, um, but about that distrust over the nomination process. Um, and so Gluck was chosen for some background here. Gluck was chosen from a short list of about six candidates um, that were recommended to the governor uh, by the Judiciary Selection Commission. Uh, Commission. And so these six names included uh, Gluck as uh, well as four women, uh, three of whom are Native Hawaiian, and, uh, and then another Filipino male, but all aside from Gluck, with relatively more courtroom experience, right? So actual cases. Um, yeah, uh, trial experience. Trial yeah. experience, right. And so uh, there were uh, folks in uh, sort of defending uh, Gluck's track record saying, you know, he doesn't get to the point where he's going to try any of these cases. He wants to get things done outside of court, in settlements, and in other sort of uh, venues. But that doesn't mean that he uh, doesn't have any experience uh, at that level. He did clerk the Hawaii Supreme Court level, and so he does understand how to um, analyze opinions and how to how the appellate court works. So there was that. Um, but uh, over the past eight years, Ige's judicial appointments have uh, found to be 71% male and also 71% uh, of white or, or Japanese American ancestry. And uh, Ige had sent a statement saying, you know, we just we just don't get the applicants for judicial appointees who are female and uh, who are persons of color. Um, but then when you look at that pool, it's it's really hard to um, kind of make that that argument. But this discussion played out against the backdrop of this ongoing lack of representation of females and persons of color on the courts. And that was really the line of questioning for Gluck uh, yesterday amongst senators who really asked him, you know, whether or not you think Ige uh, made the right decision in choosing you. And, and this is what Gluck had to say. I, I can't speak as I sit here today to whether those choices were wrong or right. I think my part in the process was, um, you know, the JSC says, anyone who's interested in serving should apply. Uh, I was interested in serving and I applied. And after that, it's really out of my hands. Um, and I, I understand that that might seem uh, hollow to the those who are opposing with extraordinarily valid concerns. Um, but if, uh, if the issue is, you know, to follow the law, the law has a process set out. Um, and if that process results in me being confirmed, um, then that's great. The process will have worked and I look forward to serving. And if the process results in me not being confirmed, then the process will have worked and one of the other nominees will serve. So this this issue will definitely not go away, uh, given the testimony yesterday, these ideas of uh, systemic racism and bias in the court system and the lack of representation, I think, is something that really did get the attention of senators and will be the topic of uh, debate tomorrow on the full Senate floor. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, I mean, he's got lots of uh, uh, heavy hitters in his court. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, but I, I guess I just think of like, Oscar's so white, you know, it, mm -hmm. is the given the climate, uh, you know, that you're hearing um, the folks in the community push back. Right, right. And the, I think uh, getting the attention of, of the legislators and the public that has been tuning in. So it will be interesting to see. Right. And there have been calls before, I think, to, to relook at that judicial uh, process, uh, selection okay. process. So we'll, we'll see what happens going going forward. But yeah. thanks so much, Kubehi. Mahalo.
That was HPR reporter Ku'uvehi Hiraishi. Read about this story and more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dietrich Insurance, working with Hawaii clients to help protect what is important to them now and in the future. More about auto, home, and business insurance at Dietrich, DTRIC.com. On the next Fresh Air, Terrell Alvin McCraney, the Oscar-winning movie Moonlight was adapted from his semi-autobiographical script about growing up in the projects with a mother addicted to crack. McCraney created the Peabody Award-winning series David Makes Man about childhood trauma and the difficulty of moving beyond it. Season 2 is on OWN. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Par Hawaii and Hele Gas Stations on Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island, featuring Nom Nom convenience stores with their employees, supporting local nonprofits including Special Olympics Hawaii, parhawaii.com. to get into bird watching but don't know where to start? Well, how about the International Marketplace in Waikiki? It is home to a historic banyan tree that hosts up to 20 pairs of nesting white terns at a time. Susan Scott is a board member of the Hawaii Audubon Society. She took us to see a manooku, or a white tern chick, nicknamed Lady Godiva, which has been capturing the hearts of many this summer. She perches no more than a few feet above the walkway on one of the banyan's extending branches. Susan Scott remembers seeing Lady, uh, Lady Godiva's parents court one another, another in this very same spot just a couple of months ago. When I was standing here, there was one adult, and then another one came and was feeding the, the other adult a fish, and that's sort of a courting behavior, and they were talking to each other. And then the next time I came, there was an egg. This is not... A high season right now and there's two chicks here and there's probably more it's just hard to, to find them the, the big clue is if you look on the ground you can see pure white droppings and that's really distinctive of the white terns and to not have a nest is what's amazing to me that they lay an egg on a bare branch they lay eggs on railings there was an egg that was laid on the railing of the Hawaii Art Museum that got multi-million dollar construction project delayed until the egg hatched and the chick fledged. <laughs> so people take this, that, you know, the protection of them very seriously. And we're told Lady Godiva will likely fledge soon, so go visit her while you can. If you want to learn more, Scott wrote a whole book about the white terns. We'll have a link on our website. And we've got some special recordings for you from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here is... Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo with today's Manu Minute featuring, you guessed it, Honolulu's own Manu Oku. Manu Oku, also known as white terns or fairy terns, are a medium-sized native Hawaiian seabird that can also be found in many tropical and subtropical oceans throughout the world. They have black bills and their feathers are completely white, except for a black ring of feathers around their eyes, which makes their dark eyes look much bigger than they actually are. Like many other seabirds, they have long, narrow wings with pointed wingtips that allow them to effortlessly soar for hours or days over the ocean looking for food, which for them is primarily small fish and squid. Manuoku translates to bird of ku, the god of war and prosperity in Hawaiian mythology. Seafarers and traditional Hawaiian navigators use Manuoku as one of the best indicators of land, as these birds typically fly out to forage on the ocean in the early morning and return by nightfall. Manuoku had become very rare by the middle of the last century in the main Hawaiian islands, but their populations have grown from just over a few birds in the 1960s 
to about 2,500 today. These birds don't bother with building nests. They simply lay a single egg directly into the fork of a tree branch, and the chick hatches after about a month of incubation. This may be one reason Manuoku are doing better than many other seabirds in Hawaii that nest on the ground, making them easy prey to cats, mongoose, and rats. Interestingly, they have a special fondness for Honolulu, and they're one of the only native Hawaiian birds that can commonly be found soaring, nesting, and vocalizing in and around that city. In 2007, they were even named the official bird of Honolulu. So if you live in Honolulu and hear this outside your window, there's a Manuoku nearby. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private, and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com Listeners who have something to share with us after hearing the interviews on our show, share it via our talkback line. Here is an email we received after yesterday's show about the Koloa Sugar Plantation on Kauai. Aloha. Presently, I'm listening to the conversation episode about the sugar plantation on the island of Kauai. I am the educational program coordinator at Hawaii's Plantation Village. I just wanted to share that our plantation store here at the village is a replica of the Yamamoto store, Koloa Kauai, circa 1900. Thank you for the wonderful stories. Mahalo. Michi Lokar. And this listener left us this voicemail after uh, listening to yesterday's show. Uh, I'm calling from Makiki, and I wanted to say that uh, this show about Kauai indicates that everything was hunky-dory on Kauai and doesn't mention, it's not, it's not very balanced. What about the labor strife and the people that were strikers that were shot to death by the police and the mistreatment by the plantation of the workers? You know, there should be some mention of that. That's a huge part of the Kauai plantation history. Bye. And I do want to invite that listener to listen back to, t- to yesterday's show. It's available on our website. Uh, we did cover the hardships of life at that time with our guests, and we did mention the Hanapepe massacre. And a listener sent this email after our interview with Lai Elementary 6th grader Kelani Tinkham on July 22nd. Aloha, Catherine and staff. I enjoyed your interview with young Miss Tinkham last week. Her words confirmed something I encountered during my Ph.D. research in New Zealand. My topic was well-being effects of participation in traditional arts inspired by my encounters with hula, taiko, and other arts practiced here in the islands. One of the main components I found was resilience, which Keilani mentioned specifically. Effects are well known to practitioners, but I did find a way to quantify well-being effects, and I've used the research to support grants and program evaluation notably for the Institute of Hawaiian Music at UHMC and a youth mentoring program at uh, Ka'ehu Bay to the tune of about $4 million between them. Thanks for your great work. Best wishes, Stephen. And we received this a voicemail after our live call-in show about, uh, with outgoing Hawaii Public School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto on July 13th. My name is Sean, and I'm calling from Waiahu, Maui, Hawaii, And I'm calling about your recent conversation about testing in schools. And you're right, there should be no testing in schools at the elementary and middle school level when there's a pandemic. It's much too stressful. It's much too difficult. And that's one of the reasons some teachers on this island are not teaching anymore or don't teach the subject matter they were originally brought here to teach. The testing is big business. It was originally done in foreign countries so we could pluck out the best of those countries. And now we're trying to do it here in our own country. It's very sad, and it's not educative. 
And we received this voicemail after our show on the 100th anniversary of the Hawaiian Homestead Commission Act on July 9th. My name is Mary Jane Allen, and I'm calling from the Big Island of Hawaii, and I'm listening to your current program, and the tiny house issue was raised, so I just wanted to give a comment about the tiny house. I've been living in one for the last five years, so um, I would like to just maybe a one-minute comment on, on promoting the advantages of life in these tiny homes on wheels, um, especially that we live in a lava-active area. Thank you. And we got this email after an HPR reporter's debrief on increasing affordable housing inventory back on July 6th. I was listening to your segment, and I heard the reporter make some uh, disingenuous comments about Kailua folks not wanting an affordable housing complex in Kailua. The facts are these. The project was proposed to go in a residential area inappropriate for an apartment complex. It would have displaced several homes on a quiet street with no adequate street parking, and there was no parking plan for that proposed condo complex. Additionally, there was only 10% slated to be affordable, and and only for, I think, 25 years. The rest were slated for market value. This was not a case of nimbyism, but a community that knew it was going to be priced out of the market by developers once again. Kailua folks weren't the bad guys here. Sincerely, Mr. Um, uh, Miss uh, Mitchell Grotstein. If you have some thoughts to share about something you heard on our show, leave it on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We do have to go now, but up tomorrow we look back at businesses born out of this pandemic. Got a story about that you want to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR. Tweet us at HI Conversation, and email works too. Talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.